Chapter 9 of Science and Hypothesis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Science and Hypothesis by Henri Poincaré. Chapter 9 Hypotheses in Physics. The Role of Experiment and Generalization. Experiment is the sole source of truth. It alone can teach us something new. It alone can give us certainty. These are two points that cannot be questioned. But then, if experiment is everything, what place is left for mathematical physics? What can experimental physics do with such an auxiliary, an auxiliary, moreover, which seems useless and even may be dangerous? However, mathematical physics exists. It has rendered undeniable service, and that is a fact which has to be explained. It is not sufficient merely to observe. We must use our observations, and for that purpose we must generalize. This is what has always been done, only, as the recollection of past errors has made man more and more circumspect, he has observed more and more, and generalized less and less. Every age has scoffed at its predecessor, accusing it of having generalized too boldly and too naively. Descartes used to commiserate the Ionians. Descartes in his turn makes us smile, and no doubt some day our children will laugh at us. Is there no way of getting at once to the gist of the matter, and thereby escaping the raillery which we foresee? Cannot we be content with experiment alone? No, that is impossible. That would be a complete misunderstanding of the true character of science. The man of science must work with method. Science is built up of facts, as a house is built of stones. But an accumulation of facts is no more a science than a heap of stones is a house. Most important of all, the man of science must exhibit foresight. Carlyle has written somewhere something after this fashion. Nothing but facts are of importance. John Lackland passed by here. Here is something that is admirable. Here is a reality for which I would give all the theories in the world. Carlyle was a compatriot of Bacon, and, like him, he wished to proclaim his worship of the God of things as they are. But Bacon would not have said that. That is the language of the historian. The physicist would most likely have said, John Lackland passed by here. It is all the same to me, for he will not pass this way again. We all know that there are good and bad experiments. The latter accumulate in vain. Whether there are a hundred or a thousand, one single piece of work by a real master, by a pasteur, for example, will be sufficient to sweep them into oblivion. Bacon would have thoroughly understood that, for he invented the phrase experimentum crucis, but Carlyle would not have understood it. A fact is a fact. A student has read such and such a number on his thermometer. He has taken no precautions. It does not matter, he has read it, and if it is only the fact which counts, this is a reality that is as much entitled to be called a reality as the peregrinations of King John Lackland. What, then, is a good experiment? It is that which teaches us something more than an isolated fact. It is that which enables us to predict and to generalize. Without generalization, prediction is impossible. The circumstances under which one has operated will never again be reproduced simultaneously. The fact observed will never be repeated. All that can be affirmed is that under analogous circumstances an analogous fact will be produced. To predict it, we must therefore invoke the aid of analogy. 
That is to say, even at this stage, we must generalize. However timid we may be, there must be interpolation. Experiment only gives us a certain number of isolated points. They must be connected by a continuous line, and this is a true generalization. But more is done. The curve thus traced will pass between and near the points observed. It will not pass through the points themselves. Thus, we are not restricted to generalizing our experiment. We correct it. And the physicist who would abstain from these corrections, and really content himself with experiment pure and simple, would be compelled to enunciate very extraordinary laws indeed. Detached facts cannot therefore satisfy us, and that is why our science must be ordered, or, better still, generalized. It is often said that experiments should be made without preconceived ideas. That is impossible. Not only would it make every experiment fruitless, but even if we wished to do so, it could not be done. Every man has his own conception of the world, and this he cannot so easily lay aside. We must, for example, use language, and our language is necessarily steeped in preconceived ideas. Only they are unconscious preconceived ideas, which are a thousand times the most dangerous of all. Shall we say that if we cause others to intervene, of which we are fully conscious, that we shall only aggravate the evil? I do not think so. I am inclined to think that they will serve as ample counterpoises. I was almost going to say antidotes. They will generally disagree, they will enter into conflict one with another, and, ipso facto, they will force us to look at things under different aspects. This is enough to free us. He is no longer a slave who can choose his master. Thus, by generalization, every fact observed enables us to predict a large number of others. Only, we ought not to forget that the first alone is certain, and that all the others are merely probable. However solidly founded a prediction may appear to us, we are never absolutely sure that experiment will not prove it to be baseless if we set to work to verify it. But the probability of its accuracy is often so great that practically we may be content with it. It is far better to predict without certainty than never to have predicted at all. We should never, therefore, disdain to verify when the opportunity presents itself. But every experiment is long and difficult, and the laborers are few, and the number of facts which we require to predict is enormous. And besides this mass, the number of direct verifications that we can make will never be more than a negligible quantity. Of this little that we can directly attain, we must choose the best. Every experiment must enable us to make a maximum number of predictions, having the highest possible degree of probability. The problem is, so to speak, to increase the output of the scientific machine. I may be permitted to compare science to a library which must go on increasing indefinitely. The librarian has limited funds for his purchases, and he must, therefore, strain every nerve not to waste them. Experimental physics has to make the purchases, and experimental physics alone can enrich the library. As for mathematical physics, her duty is to draw up the catalogue. If the catalogue is well done, the library is none the richer for it, but the reader will be enabled to utilize its riches, and also by showing the librarian the gaps in his collection, it will help him to make a judicious use of his funds, which is all the more important, inasmuch as those funds are entirely inadequate. That is the role of mathematical physics. It must direct generalization, so as to increase what I called just now the output of science. By what means it does this, and how it may do it without danger, is what we have now to examine. The Unity of Nature 
Let us first of all observe that every generalization supposes in a certain measure a belief in the unity and simplicity of nature. As far as the unity is concerned, there can be no difficulty. If the different parts of the universe were not as the organs of the same body, they would not react one upon the other. They would mutually ignore each other, and we in particular should only know one part. We need not, therefore, ask if nature is one, but how she is one. As for the second point, that is not so clear. It is not certain that nature is simple. Can we without danger act as if she were? There was a time when the simplicity of Marriott's law was an argument in favour of its accuracy. When Fresnel himself, after having said in a conversation with Laplace that nature cares not for analytical difficulties, was compelled to explain his words so as not to give offence to current opinion. Nowadays, ideas have changed considerably, but those who do not believe that natural laws must be simple are still often obliged to act as if they did believe it. They cannot entirely dispense with this necessity without making all generalization, and therefore all science, impossible. It is clear that any fact can be generalized in an infinite number of ways, and it is a question of choice. The choice can only be guided by considerations of simplicity. Let us take the most ordinary case, that of interpolation. We draw a continuous line as regularly as possible between the points given by observation. Why do we avoid angular points and inflections that are too sharp? Why do we not make our curve describe the most capricious zigzags? It is because we know beforehand, or think we know, that the law we have to express cannot be so complicated as all that. The mass of Jupiter may be deduced either from the movements of its satellites, or from the perturbations of the major planets, or from those of the minor planets. If we take the mean of the determinations obtained by these three methods, we find three numbers very close together, but not quite identical. This result might be interpreted by supposing that the gravitation constant is not the same in the three cases. The observations would be certainly much better represented. Why do we reject this interpretation? Not because it is absurd, but because it is uselessly complicated. We shall only accept it when we are forced to, and it is not imposed upon us yet. To sum up, in most cases every law is held to be simple until the contrary is proved. This custom is imposed upon physicists by the reasons that I have indicated, but how can it be justified in the presence of discoveries which daily show us fresh details, richer and more complex? How can we even reconcile it with the unity of nature? For if all things are interdependent, the relations in which so many different objects intervene can no longer be simple. If we study the history of science, we see produced two phenomena which are, so to speak, each the inverse of the other. Sometimes it is simplicity which is hidden under what is apparently complex. Sometimes, on the contrary, it is simplicity which is apparent and which conceals extremely complex realities. What is there more complicated than the disturbed motions of the planets, and what more simple than Newton's law? There, as Fresnel said, nature, playing with analytical difficulties, only uses simple means, and creates by their combination I know not what tangled skein. Here it is the hidden simplicity which must be disentangled. Examples to the contrary abound. In the kinetic theory of gases, molecules of tremendous velocity are discussed, whose paths, deformed by incessant impacts, have the most capricious shapes, and plough their way through space in every direction. The result observable is Marriott's simple law. Each individual fact was complicated. The law of great numbers has re-established simplicity in the mean. 
Here the simplicity is only apparent, and the coarseness of our senses alone prevents us from seeing the complexity. Many phenomena obey a law of proportionality. But why? Because in these phenomena there is something which is very small. The simple law observed is only the translation of the general analytical rule by which the infinitely small increment of a function is proportional to the increment of the variable. As in reality our increments are not infinitely small, but only very small, the law of proportionality is only approximate, and simplicity is only apparent. What I have just said applies to the law of the superposition of small movements, which is so fruitful in its applications, and which is the foundation of optics. And Newton's law itself? Its simplicity, so long undetected, is perhaps only apparent. Who knows if it be not due to some complicated mechanism, to the impact of some subtle matter animated by irregular movements, and if it has not become simple merely through the play of averages and large numbers? In any case, it is difficult not to suppose that the true law contains complementary terms which may become sensible at small distances. If, in astronomy, they are negligible, and if the law thus regains its simplicity, it is solely on account of the enormous distances of the celestial bodies. No doubt if our means of investigation became more and more penetrating, we should discover the simple beneath the complex, and then the complex from the simple and then again the simple beneath the complex, and so on, without ever being able to predict what the last term will be. We must stop somewhere, and for science to be possible we must stop where we have found simplicity. That is the only ground on which we can erect the edifice of our generalizations. But this simplicity being only apparent, will the ground be solid enough? That is what we have now to discover." For this purpose, let us see what part is played in our generalizations by the belief in simplicity. We have verified a simple law in a considerable number of particular cases. We refuse to admit that this coincidence, so often repeated, is a result of mere chance, and we conclude that the law must be true in the general case. Kepler remarks that the positions of a planet observed by Tycho are all on the same ellipse. Not for one moment does he think that, by a singular freak of chance, Tycho had never looked at the heavens except at the very moment when the path of the planet happened to cut that ellipse. What does it matter, then, if the simplicity be real or if it hide a complex truth? Whether it be due to the influence of great numbers which reduces individual differences to a level, or to the greatness or the smallness of certain quantities which allow of certain terms to be neglected, in no case is it due to chance." This simplicity, real or apparent, has always a cause. We shall therefore always be able to reason in the same fashion, and if a simple law has been observed in several particular cases, we may legitimately suppose that it still will be true in analogous cases. To refuse to admit this would be to attribute an inadmissible role to chance. However, there is a difference. If the simplicity were real and profound, it would bear the test of the increasing precision of our methods of measurement. If, then, we believe nature to be profoundly simple, we must conclude that it is an approximate and not a rigorous simplicity. This is what was formerly done, but it is what we have no longer the right to do. The simplicity of Kepler's laws, for instance, is only apparent, but that does not prevent them from being applied to almost all systems analogous to the solar system, though that prevents them from being rigorously exact. Role of Hypothesis Every generalization is a hypothesis. Hypothesis, therefore, plays a necessary role, which no one has ever contested. 
only, it should always be, as soon as possible, submitted to verification. It goes without saying that, if it cannot stand this test, it must be abandoned without any hesitation. This is, indeed, what is generally done, but sometimes with a certain impatience. Ah, well, this impatience is not justified. The physicist who has just given up one of his hypotheses should, on the contrary, rejoice, for he found an unexpected opportunity of discovery. His hypothesis, I imagine, had not been lightly adopted. It took into account all the known factors which seem capable of intervention in the phenomenon. If it is not verified, it is because there is something unexpected and extraordinary about it, because we are on the point of finding something unknown and new. Has the hypothesis thus rejected been sterile? Far from it. It may be even said that it has rendered more service than a true hypothesis. Not only has it been the occasion of a decisive experiment, but if this experiment had been made by chance, without the hypothesis, no conclusion could have been drawn. Nothing extraordinary would have been seen, and only one fact the more would have been catalogued, without deducing from it the remotest consequence. Now, under what conditions is the use of hypothesis without danger? The proposal to submit all to experiment is not sufficient. Some hypotheses are dangerous, first and foremost those which are tacit and unconscious. And since we make them without knowing them, we cannot get rid of them. Here again there is a service that mathematical physics may render us. By the precision which is its characteristic, we are compelled to formulate all the hypotheses that we would unhesitatingly make without its aid. Let us also notice that it is important not to multiply hypotheses indefinitely. If we construct a theory based upon multiple hypotheses, and if experiment condemns it, which of the premises must be changed? It is impossible to tell. Conversely, if the experiment succeeds, must we suppose that it has verified all these hypotheses at once? Can several unknowns be determined from a single equation? We must also take care to distinguish between the different kinds of hypotheses. First of all, there are those which are quite natural and necessary. It is difficult not to suppose that the influence of very distant bodies is quite negligible, that small movements obey a linear law, and that effect is a continuous function of its cause. I will say as much for the conditions imposed by symmetry. All these hypotheses affirm, so to speak, the common basis of all the theories of mathematical physics. They are the last that should be abandoned. There is a second category of hypotheses which I shall qualify as indifferent. In most questions, the analyst assumes, at the beginning of his calculations, either that matter is continuous, or the reverse, that it is formed of atoms. In either case, his results would have been the same. On the atomic supposition, he has a little more difficulty in obtaining them. That is all. If, then, experiment confirms his conclusions, will he suppose that he has proved, for example, the real existence of atoms? In optical theories, two vectors are introduced one of which we consider as a velocity and the other as a vortex. This, again, is an indifferent hypothesis, since we should have arrived at the same conclusions by assuming the former to be a vortex and the latter to be a velocity. The success of the experiment cannot prove, therefore, that the first vector is really a velocity. It only proves one thing, namely, that it is a vector, and that is the only hypothesis that has really been introduced into the premises to give it the concrete appearance that the fallibility of our minds demands, it was necessary to consider it either as a velocity or as a vortex. In the same way, it was necessary to represent it by an X or a Y, but the result will not prove that we were right or wrong in regarding it as a velocity, nor will it prove we are right or wrong in calling it X and not Y. 
these indifferent hypotheses are never dangerous, provided their characters are not misunderstood. They may be useful, either as artifices for calculation, or to assist our understanding by concrete images, to fix the ideas, as we say. They need not therefore be rejected. The hypotheses of the third category are real generalizations. They must be confirmed or invalidated by experiment. Whether verified or condemned, they will always be fruitful. But, for the reasons I have given, they will only be so if they are not too numerous. Origin of Mathematical Physics Let us go further and study more closely the conditions which have assisted the development of mathematical physics. We recognize at the outset that the efforts of men of science have always tended to resolve the complex phenomenon given directly by experiment into a very large number of elementary phenomena, and that in three different ways. First, with respect to time. Instead of embracing in its entirety the progressive development of a phenomenon, we simply try to connect each moment with the one immediately preceding. We admit that the present state of the world only depends on the immediate past, without being directly influenced, so to speak, by the recollection of a more distant past. Thanks to this postulate, instead of studying directly the whole succession of phenomena, we may confine ourselves to writing down its differential equation. For the laws of Kepler, we substitute the law of Newton. Next, we try to decompose the phenomena in space. What experiment gives us is a confused aggregate of facts spread over a scene of considerable extent. We must try to deduce the elementary phenomenon, which will still be localized in a very small region of space. A few examples, perhaps, will make my meaning clearer. If we wish to study in all its complexity the distribution of temperature in a cooling solid, we could never do so. This is simply because, if we only reflect that a point in the solid can directly impart some of its heat to a neighboring point, it will immediately impart that heat only to the nearest points, and it is but gradually that the flow of heat will reach other portions of the solid. The elementary phenomenon is the interchange of heat between two contiguous points. It is strictly localized and relatively simple if, as is natural, we admit that it is not influenced by the temperature of the molecules whose distance apart is small. I bend a rod. It takes a very complicated form, the direct investigation of which would be impossible. But I can detect the problem, however, if I notice that its flexure is only the resultant of the deformations of the very small elements of the rod, and that the deformation of each of these elements only depends on the forces which are directly applied to it, and not in the least on those which may be acting on the other elements. In all these examples, which may be increased without difficulty, it is admitted that there is no action at a distance, or at great distances. That is a hypothesis. It is not always true, as the law of gravitation proves. It must therefore be verified. If it is confirmed, even approximately, it is valuable, for it helps us to use mathematical physics, at any rate by successive approximations. If it does not stand the test, we must seek something else that is analogous, for there are other means of arriving at the elementary phenomenon. If several bodies act simultaneously, it may happen that their actions are independent and may be added one to the other, either as vectors or as scalar quantities. The elementary phenomenon is then the action of an isolated body. Or suppose, again, it is a question of small movements, or more generally, of small variations, which obey the well-known law of mutual or relative independence. The movement observed will then be decomposed into simple movements, for example, sound into its harmonics, and white light into its monochromatic components. When we have discovered in which direction to seek for the elementary phenomena, 
by what means may we reach it? First, it will often happen that in order to predict it, or rather in order to predict what is useful to us, it will not be necessary to know its mechanism. The law of great numbers will suffice. Take, for example, the propagation of heat. Each molecule radiates towards its neighbour. We need not inquire according to what law. And if we make any supposition in this respect, it will be an indifferent hypothesis, and therefore useless and unverifiable. In fact, by the action of averages, and thanks to the symmetry of the medium, all differences are levelled, and, whatever the hypothesis may be, the result is always the same. The same feature is presented in the theory of elasticity, and in that of capillarity. The neighbouring molecules attract and repel each other. We need not inquire by what law. It is enough for us that this attraction is sensible at small distances only, and that the molecules are very numerous, that the medium is symmetrical, and we have only to let the law of great numbers come into play. Here again the simplicity of the elementary phenomenon is hidden beneath the complexity of the observable resultant phenomenon. But in its turn this simplicity was only apparent, and disguised a very complex mechanism. Evidently the best means of reaching the elementary phenomenon would be experiment. It would be necessary by experimental artifices to dissociate the complex system which nature offers for our investigations, and carefully to study the elements as dissociated as possible. For example, natural white light would be decomposed into monochromatic lights by the aid of the prism, and into polarized lights by the aid of the polarizer. Unfortunately, that is neither always possible nor always sufficient, and sometimes the mind must run ahead of experiment. I shall only give one example which has always struck me rather forcibly. If I decompose white light, I shall be able to isolate a portion of the spectrum, but however small it may be, it will always be a certain width. In the same way, the natural lights which are called monochromatic give us a very fine array, but a Y which is not, however, infinitely fine. It might be supposed that in the experimental study of the properties of these natural lights, by operating with finer and finer rays, and passing on at last to the limit, so to speak, we should eventually obtain the properties of a rigorously monochromatic light. That would not be accurate. I assume that two rays emanate from the same source, that they are first polarized in planes at right angles, that they are then brought back again to the same plane of polarization, and that we try to obtain interference. If the light were rigorously monochromatic, there would be interference. But with our nearly monochromatic lights, there will be no interference, and that, however narrow the ray may be. For it to be otherwise, the ray would have to be several million times finer than the finest known rays. Here, then, we should be led astray by proceeding to the limit. The mind has to run ahead of the experiment, and if it has done so with success, it is because it has allowed itself to be guided by the instinct of simplicity. The knowledge of the elementary fact enables us to state the problem in the form of an equation. It only remains to deduce from it the observable and verifiable complex fact. That is what we call integration, and it is the province of the mathematician. It might be asked why in physical science generalization so readily takes the mathematical form. The reason is now easy to see. It is not only because we have to express numerical laws. It is because the observable phenomenon is due to the superposition of a large number of elementary phenomena which are all similar to each other, and in this way differential equations are quite naturally introduced. It is not enough that each elementary phenomenon should obey simple laws. All those that we have to combine must obey the same law. Then only is the intervention of mathematics of any use. 
Mathematics teaches us, in fact, to combine like with like. Its object is to divine the result of a combination without having to reconstruct that combination element by element. If we have to repeat the same operation several times, mathematics enables us to avoid this repetition by telling the result beforehand by a kind of induction. This I have explained before in the chapter on mathematical reasoning. But for that purpose all these operations must be similar. In the contrary case, we must evidently make up our minds to working them out in full one after the other, and mathematics will be useless. It is therefore thanks to the approximate homogeneity of the matter studied by physicists that mathematical physics came into existence. In the natural sciences, the following conditions are no longer to be found. Homogeneity, relative independence of remote parts, simplicity of the elementary fact. And that is why the student of natural science is compelled to have recourse to other modes of generalization. End of chapter 9